Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, New Testament professor Daryl Bock talks on how we can be confident in the truth of Jesus' existence, as well as his own conversion to Christianity. So Daryl, tell me, how do, you, how do we know about the person of Jesus, what he did and said? Well, uh, the major sources that we have for Jesus, of course, are the Gospels. Um, these are pieces of material that were passed down through oral tradition, eventually recorded into, into story form, uh, became the Gospels. But originally, they probably circulated as individual pieces of material that were passed on orally. I like to tell my students that in the beginning, you know, there were no books. Uh, that to have something written down was very, very unusual. So the way you passed it on was orally from person to person. And the apostles oversaw the stories that got told in the church services. And they eventually gathered that into things that we call the Gospels. In the second century, the Gospels were called apostolic memoirs because they were the memories of the impact of Jesus on these people. Um, we kind of use that phrase in, West, in Western countries like Chinese whispers, which is... Yeah, exactly. That, that, no, I love that name. Yeah, which is that yeah. whole, the whole idea that yeah, things get yeah, passed on. Exactly. They, they get ha, sloppy. Yeah, yeah, so if that's, if that's the case, why, why can we trust these books then? Because there's different kinds of oral tradition depending on what you're passing on. I mean, the stuff that you pass on in Chinese whispers, nobody cares about. I mean, their life is not going to be changed by anything that's going on during that game. So there was a, there's a scholar named uh, Kenneth Bailey who studied oral tradition and actually worked with Bedouin tribes in the Middle East and uh, saw a familiarity between what he was encountering and what he thought he saw in the scriptures. And he argued that there is what's called uncontrolled and informal oral tradition. That's your Chinese whispers, you know, kind of thing where it doesn't really matter what happens. The rabbis had what he called a formal and controlled approach, which only certain people could tell the story and had to follow certain rules. So it got passed on in a very strict, careful kind of way. And then he argued that what he was experiencing among Bedouins in the Middle East is like what he sees in the New Testament, which he called... Uh, um, formal but in uncontrolled. And, and what he meant by that is, uh, or sorry, controlled and, and inf informal. And the point that he made is only certain people oversaw the stories, but anyone could tell it provided they told it well and accurately. Because what he was seeing was people would tell the stories and then if it wandered too far, it would get corrected. And so, so we can look at what I like to tell students about oral tradition is, if you look at these stories and their differences, there are differences in details, but they're not differences in gist. If you ask, you know, what happened, you would get the point of what's happened. How many details they put around it was varied. And we even have examples of the same author telling the same story three times, where he does this variation in gist as well. So you know this is how they told stories. Uh, it, with these little bitty differences that give you a different angle on things. I like to use the example, I don't know if this will work in Australia, but I like to use the example of instant replay. I know you have instant replay for cricket and for Aussie rules and that kind of thing. And the more angles you have, the better look you get at what's going on. Some angles will answer the question that you're looking at in terms of what the call should be, and others won't because they just don't give you the right angle. So you get these differences between the Gospels and what skeptics will tend to exploit as contradiction actually may be only difference uh, and may only be a different angle on things. I've heard it said as well and talked about that, that there are 
sort of differences in the texts that we have, but the differences are fairly minor in the sense that they're more punctuation than there are, as you say, as in the direction of the story. The New Testament is by far the most well-attested ancient text we possess, and it's by miles. It's not even close. So um, the, uh, a classic that has 200 manuscripts is considered to be a significant number of manuscripts. For the New Testament, we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. We have another 8,000 Latin manuscripts. That's part of what produces the differences because you're not dealing with a Xerox machine. You're not dealing with a, something that mimeographs something. You're dealing with a hand, word-by-word -word copying situation, which introduces a lot of differences, sometimes spelling, sometimes word order, uh, that kind of thing. But you usually know exactly what you're dealing with. Less than 1% of the differences that we see actually really impact the meaning of a text and like to tell people when they pick up a Bible, if they have a good Bible, it'll have a marginal note that will say or. And so it will tell you what those differences might be. So you actually know what your options are. So none of that, and none of that impacts any of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. It might impact how many verses teach something but it doesn't impact what the core teaching of the Christian faith is all about. If that's the case with such strong evidence, why the skepticism? Why do people, you know, A, dismiss Jesus or B, dismiss those stories? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons. I think some of it is, is really personal. The biblical message is a challenging message about who we are as people. People don't care to be challenged. They like to think of themselves as great independents. Uh, you know, you given in a world that allows the choice between each one of us being kind of being a little God and saying we're accountable to God, a lot of people like their independence. So I think that actually is one reason that drives the skepticism. The other thing is some people do have very legitimate questions about how the history works. Some of the stuff that's in the Bible is a little bit unusual. It's not the normal kind of thing. So that produces, I think, some tension for people in terms of being able to accept it. But the overall impact of what we're dealing with and how this little band of, of, you know, of, of Jewish disciples of Jesus tucked away in a far corner of the Greco-Roman world could end up growing into something that impacts the entire world, that tells you, now that's something unusual going on. And so when we, you know, today the, the, the joke is, you know, Jesus was a little thing in his time and Nero was a big deal. Today, Jesus is a big deal and Nero is what you call your dog, you know, <laughs> uh, tells you yeah. how things have reversed. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and in that way, you, you see the, the growing impact, the consistent impact of what it is that Jesus was responsible for. You, you teach in, in a, a Bible college. You've studied the Bible all these years. What are the places of doubt or, or question that either your students or you have had to deal with in, in, in believing? Well, I didn't grow up in see. a Christian home. I, I came out of skepticism to Christianity in college. Um, so my story is a little bit opposite than a, at least a lot of Americans. And so when I came into faith, it was coming out of a skepticism in which I had absorbed, I would say, the doubt of the culture uh, that I grew up in and then came to embrace and see the trustworthiness of Scripture. So on the other end, I haven't wrestled that much with doubt because I've already been through that, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but I, I think for a lot of people, initially some of the differences produce a problem. I also think the church produces a problem to a certain degree because it creates expectations about the Bible that the Bible doesn't necessarily deliver on. I, I tell my students, it's as wrong to make the Bible do too much as to make the Bible do too little. 
And so in this case, I think sometimes the church creates an expectation by the way it talks about inspiration, by not actually looking at the de how the details work, that it creates expectations where people will go, that's a problem, that can't work, when in fact it can work and it isn't quite as neat and tidy as they want to make it. So you, you said you came out of skepticism and doubt. What kind of got you across the line in believing Jesus? Well, it really was the authentic lives of the people that I was around. I saw something different, and what they were telling me was is that what made them different was their exposure to the Scripture. I love telling a story about when I went off to college. We had what was called a potluck roommate. And many people who go to college, you know, they room with someone who they knew in high school or something like that. But, but in my case, I was going to a school moving from Houston to Dallas and Texas, and, and I didn't know who my roommate was going to be. I, and my joke is it's a little bit like getting married without getting engaged because <laughs> the school picks your roommate. And so the night before, it was a little nerve-wracking. It was my first long way, long time away from home. And so I, I prayed this prayer as an agnostic, but, you know, you get desperate when you don't know what's coming next. And so, so the prayer went like this. Uh, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, please don't give me a Bible-carrying Southern Baptist because, uh, you know, I want to enjoy my college years. Amen. That, there's nothing theologically sound about that <laughs> prayer. And, uh, and so I get there, and I arrive at Bose Hall, and I open the door, and there's a trunk there in the 70s when I was going to college. There was, you, you put your entire life in the trunk, and he had gotten there before me, although he wasn't in the room. And I walked in, and the first thing I saw was a leather-bound Bible. So I didn't have to ask his denomination. I think I, I, I sensed what was going on here, and lo and behold, he was from Atlanta, Georgia, deep south. He was Southern Baptist. In fact, it was First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia. And so in that sense, um, I saw that God had answered my prayer, and the answer was no. But the authenticity <laughs> of his life in the way he ex lived out what the Bible was about, I sensed that there was something different about the way he went about life that looked attractive. And so that's really what put me over the line. So, so you're attracted by his life. But then you still have to deal with the content of the what content. Of, of, of how he's putting his life together. And he's putting his life together in a way. And, and actually, I had several friends who were like this. But, you know, I, I was around him almost 24-7 for a year. And, um, and there, was, there was an authenticity to it. There was a what he did things differently. He approached people differently, that kind of thing. And I sensed all that. And it was just very attractive. So and, did you enjoy the year? Oh yeah, we, we used to, I mean, the, I actually didn't become a Christian until after that year, um, but we would talk about all kinds of things. I was great. I would develop this terrific compassion for Africans as a non-Christian. So whenever he would get close to me with the message of the gospel, my response would be, um, well, what about the heathen in Africa who never heard, you know, all this terrific compassion? It was like throwing meat to a hungry lion. You know, he would go off and run off and deal with the Africans. He was answering my question, but he was off of me. So that was great. So I had all these diversionary things that I did with him. I had what I called the great Bible list of problems that I would throw at him, and he would answer one, and I'd, oh, here's another one, and you know, here's another one. So it was like going to the candy jar, you know, <laughs> just keep it coming. And uh, so all these tactics, and he was very, very faithful, and if he didn't know an answer, he would tell me, but he had a friend who was a little more intellectually rigorous than he was, so he would call him in. So sometimes it was two-on-one. And, uh, uh, and, but it was very, very enjoyable. We developed a very good friendship, and out of that um, was certainly part of a powerful testimony. He was one of several people who fit that description. And so I knew it wasn't just him. There was something going on between all these people that made them all similar in that regard, and so that became attractive. So 
why the step from doing that and coming to a pl place of belief and faith to teaching the Bible going into... Because once I decided that Jesus was the real deal then and, and was about life, I had always had an inclination to want to do something with my life that would that would serve people, that would benefit them. So what better way to benefit people and serve people than to put them in touch with their creator? So, um, so once that became my conviction, I immediately moved from radio, TV, and film, which is where I had started into the humanities, figured out I was going to go to seminary. I, I became a Christian after that freshman year in Dallas, moved to Austin, started a Bible study just to just to study the Bible with friends, basically. That Bible study went from six people that we started off with my second year in college. By my fourth year in college, we had enough people that we were filling a four-bedroom apartment, and we were talking about it, and people were yelling at each other from different rooms because we didn't have enough space to hold everybody. And, um, and I was responsible for those Bible studies. And so, um, so it was a pretty small indication I probably should be doing this. Yeah. Go, let's go back and look at the person of Jesus. And you, you mentioned this a little earlier that when Jesus left Earth, he didn't actually leave a great deal, did he? What, what was left? <laughs> Nothing but his teaching. Yeah. I mean, basically, um, he left disciples. He left his teaching. He left. Uh, he, he left and didn't leave because, of course, he also gave of his spirit to those who were responsive because that was the gift of life. And so he didn't leave anything of material consequence. Of course, we can't take it with us anyway. So we, you know, you leave it or you, you, you leave it. It's just a question of how. And then, uh, and then he left what he represented, which was an authentic way of living that got passed on. So it was a huge bequest, just not a stuff. Yeah, and it's intriguing because nobody would have picked that that these followers of Jesus were going to take off and, and, and impact and explode were, across the world. They were little Galilean Jews tucked away in a corner of the Greco-Roman Empire. You know, if you had asked how important they were at a social level or whatever, you know, they come and go. They, you know, they're here and they die. There, there was nothing to indicate that there would be something of significance coming out of this group. And, and what is interesting is, is that this rather motley crew of very average people um, ended up uh, being impacted so significantly by Jesus and being able to communicate that impact significantly enough that within, you know, three centuries, um, the Roman Empire is on the way out, but the Christian church is on the way in. Why do you think that? I mean, no, that's a huge question. It's yeah, quite yeah. complex. Yeah, but yeah. Just in a potted way, in your own heart and mind and your teaching, what is it that caused that difference? Well, let's simplify the question by giving a simple answer. It was a God thing. I mean, it really was something that when you look at it, it's a really amazing phenomenon how that could happen. Uh, and it happened by people being impacted uh, almost one at a time by people living out their authentic Christian commitments. And also, in some cases, interestingly enough, out of the, out of the crucible of persecution, because people sensed that what some were doing to the Christians was wrong. But they didn't fight back like normal people did. You know, they didn't take up arms in, in eye for eye or tooth for tooth kind of way. They just kind of took it. And, and there was an injustice to that that people sensed. And I think it raised questions of how in the world could someone do that? How in the world could they simply take that? And I think behind that was this immensely strong faith that said, this life isn't all there is. My relationship with God is secure. You know, they can hurt the hairs on my head, but they can't hurt me. 
um, that kind of thing. And, and I think that deep kind of genuine faith was really powerful. Is it intriguing that here we are 2,000 years later and your story is almost the same? Yes. That, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of continued to happen, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some people grow up in a context where they've grown up with that in their home and it's been passed on, but other people have seen what's well represented. And, and the church, let's face it, the church's history isn't all, you know, clean. There's a lot of mess. But, but when, it, when you see the authenticity of it when you, and when it stands out as different and genuinely different and there's something different about it, that's, that's what you see. And the intriguing thing too is that the, the teaching of Jesus, uh, what the Bible taught and the way that's flowed out, flowed out through the church actually kind of impacted the fabric of the community, not just those who decided to follow Jesus. There's a bigger spread, isn't there? Yeah, because there really is a deep commitment to the idea that people are made in the image of God. They're made to respect and love one another. I mean, Jesus taught, you know, love God with all your heart, mind and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a deep humanitarian commitment. I actually think it's the original humanitarianism in many ways. And uh, there's a humanitarian commitment in that. You see that lived out. You see that exemplified in the communities that were formed. And, and it's a different way of living because most people are in the business of looking out for themselves and, and being nervous about the people who are around them. Uh, and an authentic Christian experience really respects the creation to the point that even enemies are loved and cared for and cared about, that kind of thing. It's just a, it's a different way of doing things. We've kind of chatted about this as we've been talking, but as a way of wrapping this up, where this series is called Jesus is the Game Changer. For you, how do you see Jesus as the Game Changer? Well, he's a game changer because he looks at life in a completely different way than the way the world tends to look at it if you don't have God in the picture and what God has done in Jesus Christ in the picture. You know, in, in a sense, the world is the survival of the fittest in the way it goes about things. Or it's like the book of Judges, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And I like to joke, if everyone does what's right in their own eyes and they did that on the highway, just think what that would be like. Well, actually, you probably drive with those people on a regular <laughs> basis. And so, you know, so there, there's something chaotic and dysfunctional about that. But when life is ordered in line with the way we're designed to function. You know, uh, another line I like to use is, you use a Phillips screwdriver and a normal screw, that's a messy operation, that doesn't work the way it's designed. But if you put a Phillips screwdriver and a Phillips screw, then you can, you can get your work done. And so if you live out the way you're designed to live, it makes for a more stable way of life and a more fulfilling way of life. And I think that's what the Christian faith offers. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.